Well, hello and welcome once again to Centuries and Saints, episode 10 of season 1, and today we are wrapping up our look at the patristic age of the church. Now, because of the incredible amount of information that could be covered, we have only hit a few of the highlights throughout this season. So, I hope you don't feel gypped at all. Um, There is a lot in every age of the church that we could look at. Uh, But again, for time constraints, we have to kind of limit ourselves to a few of the highlights. Uh, But I hope this season of this podcast has been a blessing to you, beneficial to you. So what I want to do for this episode is I just want to do a recap of the things that we've covered, offer a few final closing thoughts, and then give you a preview of where we're going next. So again, thank you so much for being tuned into Centuries and Saints today. So again, this season we have looked at the patristic age of the church. And this is the age of the church that came about immediately after the age of the apostles and the writing and the time of the New Testament itself. So this is dated roughly 100 AD to around 451 AD at the time of the Council of Chalcedon, and after Rome had been sacked by the Visigoths. So when this age of the church roughly ends, and again, these categories, these are not dyed-in-the-wool categories. Again, nobody woke up in the year 100 AD and said, oh, we're in the patristic age of the church now, right? That's not how these things work. Uh, These are, again, just sort of dates that scholars have fixed that sort of roughly help us divide the ages and stages of the church. And so the patristic age of the church, it ended, again, shortly after, just a few decades really, after Rome had been sacked by the Visigoths. So the western part of the Roman Empire now is in decline. Okay, it's sort of begun its collapse, and it will begin to lead into that period of time, which is sort of commonly known as the Dark Ages, sort of the early Middle Ages, and then that will lead on into more of the higher Middle Ages and medieval times, and you get things like the knights and castles and all of those things that you see in Monty Python and and other things like that. And that's kind of where we're going to go next as far as church history. Okay, so the patristic age, of course, transitions into the medieval age of the church. And then after that, uh, into the time of the Reformation, And then after that, there's a few more distinctions which we'll make, you know, once we get up to that point. But that's a ways off. Um, So that's basically a rough roadmap of where we'll be going. A couple of the things that we have seen this season on the patristic age of the church, uh, I just want to highlight a few of them. The first one, again, and we owe so much to our brothers and sisters in Christ in the early days, uh, because they helped to codify orthodox dogma and doctrine. And by codify, I mean they sort of compiled their doctrine and the theology, and they laid it out in a way that was logical, systematized. They made it easier for you and me to understand these things. And one thing that we saw, the early church faced a lot of different kinds of heresy, Now, three of the worst heresies, and there were many of them, but three of the worst that the church faced were Arianism, which we talked about, Gnosticism, which we talked about, and Marcionism. Now, Arianism, again, was that belief 
uh, propounded, first of all, by uh, Bishop Arius, who began to teach that Jesus, the Son, was not actually God, not actually equal and eternal with the Father, but was actually a created being. Now, the church tackled this question head-on in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, which we talked about. And the church there, again, codified this doctrine that we hold so dear as Christians, that Jesus truly is God. He is eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, co-substantial, co-equal, and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Arianism, again, was condemned by the early church, but Arianism is alive and well even today. And you have things like the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, these groups that say they are Christian, but they aren't. You look at their doctrine about Jesus, and they believe these same kinds of things. They reject the idea of the Trinity. Okay, they, they don't believe that Jesus is fully God. All right, but the scriptures are clear that Jesus is fully God. Jesus himself was very clear when you read the Gospels that he is God. And the church for 2,000 years has uniformly declared and agreed and believed that Jesus is truly fully God. Okay, and so that is one of, again, the essentials of the Christian faith. And that's one of those doctrines where if you don't accept that, well, you're not a Christian. Okay, you, you might be some other religion, but you're not a Christian for sure. And so that's why these things are so important. And the church really had to hash these things out and pray through this stuff, search the scriptures, uh, and, and really come together and make these decisions. And we're very thankful that they did. We owe them so much. Now, the second big heresy that the church faced in the early days was Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostics, again, as we talked about earlier in the show, the Gnostics were a group that based their theology and their philosophy on Greek dualism. Okay, this idea that spiritual things, the invisible, those things are good, but that things like matter and physical things, the flesh, all of that are inherently bad and evil. Now, the Gnostics also claimed that they had been given secret knowledge, uh, passed down to them originally from Jesus, that Jesus didn't share with the rest of his apostles. And so they had this sort of secret insider knowledge that nobody else had. Okay, they were the truly enlightened ones. And by joining with them, you too could become enlightened. Well, this heresy was actually specifically addressed in the New Testament and refuted in the New Testament, and then again throughout the early stages of the church as well. In the book of 1 John, the Apostle John writes, If anyone does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that person is the Antichrist, or that person has the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, and what he was talking about there is the Gnostics, because they believed that flesh was inherently evil, they did not believe that Jesus actually came in the flesh. Okay? They believed that he was merely a spirit and did not actually incarnate. That's what that word means, incarnate, to become flesh. Okay? And so this was a big heresy, again, even in the times of the New Testament. And the Apostle John and Paul talks about this a little bit as well. And they flat out denied this heresy. Okay, and the early church did likewise. 
And then another heresy that the early church had to deal with was the heresy of Marcionism. Okay, and this was a, a theologian named Marcion. And Marcion, he believed there were two different gods in the Bible, the God of the Old Testament and then the God of the New Testament. Okay, and he believed that the God of the Old Testament was Yahweh, was a vengeful, wrathful, angry deity. But then the God of the New Testament, Jesus, was gracious and loving and compassionate and nice, and that these are different gods. Okay, and so because of that, Marcion basically rejected the entire Old Testament as scripture, and he also rejected large portions of the New Testament. Okay, so he divided up the Bible in an unorthodox way. He was condemned for that. And then, of course, trying to say that uh, there are two different gods, one in the Old and one in the New Testament, thus saying that Yahweh and Jesus were not the same, and all of that dividing up the Godhead, um, all of that is just complete rubbish and heresy, and he was condemned for that, and rightly so. Again, these there were many more heresies and many more issues the early church had to deal with, but those are sort of three of the main ones, three of the big ones. And it's really interesting, when you look at the history of the early church, how much of this stuff they had to deal with. Okay, and again, I believe this was the enemy's attempt to try and get the early church off track and to try and and get the early church into heresy right away. Okay, but thanks be to God, glory be to God alone, that the early church came together. They prayed, they fasted, they sought the Lord, they searched the scriptures, they held on to apostolic teaching and tradition, and they condemned these heresies. They, They severely denounced them. And we thank God for that. We thank God for the legacy that you and I have now, 20 centuries later, and because of the clarity and the work uh, that these early church fathers put in, you and I can be certain that the traditions we've been given are in line with Scripture, and that we have the true deposit of faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude talked about in his epistle in the New Testament. Again, the the codifying and the systematizing of doctrine and theology is a huge debt that we owe to the early church. Secondly, the writings of the church fathers, including the translations of scripture. All the church fathers were authors, and some of them, like uh, Jerome and Augustine, and then we have copious amounts of writings from them. Others of them, we don't have as many writings. Uh, But there is no shortage of writing from the early church. People like Origen, Tertullian, uh, Athanasius, Ambrose. Again, I mentioned Augustine and Jerome and St. John Chrysostom, massively influential Eastern Greek father. Uh, So many writings. And one of the beautiful things is that these writings are still being published today. I believe it's Penguin Publishers has their Christian Classics series of books, which I highly recommend to you. You can find those on Amazon. You can also go on Kindle Books if you have Kindle on your computer or your phone and just type in Theology Church Fathers and you'll find huge amounts of writings of the church fathers, which you can buy for literally pennies. It's really incredible. And so I would recommend all of that to you. Uh, Again, we talked about Jerome, that Latin church father who translated the Bible from the Hebrew and Greek into Latin, the the Latin Vulgate, which again was a huge step forward in translation for the early church. Uh, You also had the early church father Origen, 
He was a Greek father, and he had this incredible achievement called the hexapla, okay, which is simply a fancy Greek word which means sixfold. Now, what Origen did is he sort of took the biblical manuscripts and arranged this massive work to have the Bible in front of himself and in front of people. And, and again, this was a huge gift to the early church. So Origen, in the first column, he had six columns side by side, okay, six different columns. And in the first column, he had the Hebrew Bible or the Masoretic text in Hebrew. In the second column, he had the Hebrew Bible transliterated into Greek, which means uh, basically Greek letters were substituted for Hebrew letters so that a person reading Greek letters could still pronounce the Hebrew. In the third column, he had the Greek translation of the scripture by an earlier man named Aquila. In the fourth column, he had the Greek translation by another early man named Symmachus. In the fifth column, he had the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament translation into Greek. And then in the sixth column, he had the Greek translation by another early man named Theodosian. This was an incredibly massive work, but an incredible achievement and a gift to the church. Because of this, the early church had access to different translations of the scripture, and scholars today have this work as well to draw upon. So Jerome and Origen, just incredible. And again, amongst many others as well, uh, the writings that come to us from the age of the church right after the apostles. And so again, all of that to say, the, the age of the church that we call patristics, it really, again, it helped to codify and to systematize biblical and apostolic truth into formal binding doctrine to help Christians, including all of us today, to better understand what it is that we believe and to better understand what we call first-tier issues, the divinity of Christ, the reality of the Trinity, uh, the reality that Yahweh, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, is the only true and living God, uh, that, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There's no salvation in anyone else. Those kinds of things. And then second-tier issues, uh, you know, our views of the authority of the church, um, views on things like eschatology or whether infants should be baptized or shouldn't be, that kind of thing. And then third-tier issues, things like the timing of Christ's second coming and, you know, what kind of music we should play in church and those kinds of things. A lot of these issues were helpfully resolved for us and passed down to us. Now, again, Just because of the massive amount of information, we weren't able to cover most of what took place in the patristic age. Any kind of a survey course, which this is, has to sort of pick the highlights and unfortunately leave other things out that are no less important. And all of that, I just want to remind you and myself that we would be remiss, we would be mistaken if we also didn't remember the faithful testimony of the early martyrs, you know, men like Polycarp. Right, who was a bishop and a disciple of the Apostle John himself, who at 86 years of age was thrown into the Roman Colosseum. Right? And he was burned to death. And he maintained his faithful witness to Christ until the very end. And the many stories of the many, many martyrs and the hundreds or even thousands of other martyrs that we will never know of until we get to heaven. Right? But these men and women who faithfully stood for Christ and refused to capitulate to pagan culture and 
so many of them sealed their testimony with their blood. But as the saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church didn't diminish during these times of persecution. Martyrdom, rather, it grew exponentially. It's incredible what God did. We also talked about the desert monastics, and we looked at them. And and even though, as I talked about, I have some sort of philosophical issues with the idea of monasticism uh, relating to, you know, getting out of sort of the four walls of our buildings and, and taking Christ to others, we do have to remember to esteem those monks very highly and to be thankful again um, for their faithfulness to Christ and to the gospel and how many of these early monastic houses were places where scripture was translated, where new copies of manuscripts were made and preserved and secured and passed down to us. We'll see later on uh, in some of the, the later ages, a few hundred years after this age, that uh, a lot of the manuscripts that preserved the Bible for us were hidden and protected in a monastery, I believe, in the island of Iona. They're off the coast of Scotland and Ireland. Okay, And so we owe these monks another huge debt. Uh, they valued education. They valued literacy. And again, they, they transcribed copies of the scripture and preserved these manuscripts so that they could continue to be passed down and eventually the Bible could get into our hands today. So we thank, we thank them for that. And, and again, we remember and we thank the bishops who served at these church councils who stood for truth. And again, made these binding authoritative statements that we believe are from God. And that we still believe and live by today. And then finally, for the patristic age of the church, it's so important for us to understand that for them... And this is something that can inform and teach us today. Community. Community was one of the primary characteristics of this age of the church. The early church in the New Testament times and on into these first few centuries before the church really expanded in the Roman Empire, the church existed in close community. They gathered together often, strengthened each other, prayed for and with each other, partook of the Eucharist together, shared a meal read the scripture, prayed, and just did life together. And they encouraged one another to remain faithful to Christ, to his church, and to his gospel. And again, that's something that you and I can learn from and be blessed by in our time today. And so community was another legacy that the early church has passed down to you and I, again, for which we owe them a huge debt. I would encourage you, do more research on these things. Find these books. Uh, They're very easy to find. Again, just Google Church Fathers books or writings, and, and you'll see all kinds of things pop up on Amazon. And a lot of the sermons and a lot of the catechisms and things that were written, you can buy for just a few bucks and be really enriched and really get to know uh, the early church fathers and really get to know the things that they said and taught. It's really amazing. So we praise God. Uh, for the early church fathers and for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us, who've passed down this deposit of faith that you and I now, several centuries later, still hold on to and serve as as an example for us to faithfully pass these things on to those who will come after us. When we get into the next season of church history here on the podcast, we are going to begin talking about the, again, medieval age of the church. 
because obviously the medieval age came from and grew out of the patristic age and those foundations. And one of the big things that we're going to see is the conversion of Constantine in the year 312 began to change the way that the church looked and functioned and was organized and how that sort of paved the way for the form of medieval Christianity, which has become so familiar to so many of us. And so, and then that led into the Reformation. So again, we're going to see how these things build on on each other. I'm really excited for that. Um, But the next season that we're going to do is going to switch from church history to systematic theology, and we're going to take some episodes and look at the attributes of God. You know, who is this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit that we love and worship? and with whom we are in relationship. And we're going to look at that in our next season. Be on the lookout for that. That's coming soon. As well, in the next few days, I'm going to post uh, some sermons, five different sermons I've had the opportunity to preach in the local church, uh, one here in Tulsa, and then four from the church that we were at in Southern Oregon before that. So those are going to be, again, just sort of one-off sermons and episodes, but I wanted to get those on here, and hopefully they're a blessing to you. So once again, thanks for tuning in today. Please remember to write us a review and rate us on the podcast store and share this with friends and family. Tell people you know that might be interested. Uh, It just helps us to get the word out. Again, hopefully just so that everyone listening is blessed and just has a little bit better understanding of the history of the church and how you and I in the 21st century have gotten to where we are based upon where the church has been. Once again, thank you so much for listening. And to close out season one, this is Scott Matson for Centuries and Saints. God bless you.